invite you to turn in your copy of Scripture to our text this morning, which is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. As we continue in our series through the epistle to the Hebrews. I will read these verses for us. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, as we have noted in this series, this letter was written to Christians who were formerly Jews. They had heard the gospel And in their hearing of the gospel, God graciously and sovereignly worked in their hearts, and they turned and trusted in Christ and faith. And now, because of their newfound faith, we know that there was a problem. There were new challenges that came before them. Because these Jewish Christians, or sometimes referred to as Hebrews, they were now being persecuted for their faith in Christ They were being treated unfairly. They were being rejected by their families. They were being excluded from the Jewish community. The threats from Rome were also getting more and more dangerous against Christians at the time that this letter was written. There was opposition. There was persecution. And as a result of all of this, the Judaism... They were tempted to turn away from Jesus to something else and in suffering. They were tempted to turn back to that which to them seemed more glorious, perhaps more powerful, and ultimately more socially acceptable, something that they wouldn't experience rejection as a result of adhering to. So the writer to the Hebrews writes to encourage and to teach them about the glorious Savior that we have in Christ. And so we begin this morning by looking at the instruction the writer gives to the Hebrews in our passage and that he gives to us this morning as he is inspired by the Holy Spirit. We read there the instruction. The instruction that he gives is that there is an imperative for us as Christians. An imperative, he says, in which the way he says it is we need to pay much closer attention as Christians. We need to keep on keeping on in our profession of Christ. We see there in verse 1, he says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Now, what does it mean to pay much closer attention? Now, if we consider... In answering that question, if we consider the main idea that we saw in chapter 1, the main idea that was conveyed to us was that Christ was superior 
to the angels. And as we look at chapter 2, verse 1, our passage this morning, we see that he uses that word, therefore. And we know, in reading our Bibles, that whenever we see that word, we have to ask that all-important question, what is the therefore, therefore? And as we look back to chapter 1, we see his argument again. The argument that angels are magnificent beings. They instilled fear and awe when they appeared to people in Scripture. They have a splendor about them that is unmatched in what we see here on earth. And yet, the writer to the Hebrews says, they are, they, uh, Christ is superior to them in every way. And all of these ways are listed there in, in chapter 1. Christ is superior because he has a better name. He is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He is worshipped by angels. He's superior because he is a king and not a servant. He is superior, not a created being. And he is superior because he's seated at God's right hand, the place of honor and of power. And so in our passage this morning, the author is going to make another contrast as as we hold this idea in our minds. And this one deals now with revelation. That the revelation or the word that Christ brings is better than the law that was declared in the presence of angels. It's an argument we're going to see from the lesser to the greater. It's a very familiar rabbinic argument in Judaism. And we see the argument there. In verses 2 and 3. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And so when he writes here that the law was declared by angels, what he's referring to is the fact that angels were present on Mount Sinai when God gave his law to Moses. We read some key passages in Scripture where this is explained to us. We read, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2. There it says that the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones, with flaming fire at his right hand. The Apostle Paul also tells us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, that the law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And lastly, we see in Acts chapter 7, verse 53, that as Stephen was preaching, he accused his persecutors of being those who received the law as delivered by angels, and yet who did not keep it. And so, we see in our passage this morning that what God declared at Sinai was reliable. It was his word. That's how it is described here. It was and is completely dependable, and that this truth was then borne out by history 
because every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. So let's continue to follow his train of thought here. He says, This law that was revealed at Sinai by God to Moses through angelic mediation, he says, we know it was valid. We know it was true. We know it was binding and that God took it seriously because whenever it was broken, the consequences of disobedience were immediately felt often by Israel, by God's people. And there are numerous examples of the consequences of disobedience in the Old Testament. We read from Leviticus chapter 10 about Nadab and Abihu, who offered that strange or unauthorized fire up to God, who disobeyed God's ceremonial law, and as a result, they experienced immediate consequences for their disobedience. Another example is of Uzzah, the man who touched the Ark of the Covenant in order to steady it. And as a result of his disobedience, he received a just retribution. And we know also of the first generation of Israel, that first generation of Israel who was brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and yet who, during their wilderness wanderings, mumbled and grumbled against God. They too, as a result of their disobedience, received a just retribution. And we can think of many more examples in the Bible of this happening. So the writer here of Hebrews, he summarizes it, and one author explains it this way, if under Moses the law stood firm and its penalties were stringently enforced on those who deliberately or through negligence broke its commands, it is all the more true that the direst consequences await those who are careless and unconcerned about the gospel, which in this passage is described as such a great salvation. It is so wonderful, we read here, that no language is Adequate to do it justice. It is such a great salvation. Now, as we, we can draw, one of the wrong ways that we can understand this passage is to think that the writer is saying that the law was bad and the gospel is good. To think that he is pitting them against each other or showing that they are in conflict. But, loved ones, That's not his argument. It's important that we see this. We know that the law is good. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, he says, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law, it is the word of God. It reveals his divine standard for us, his people. It reveals his holy and righteous character. There's Nothing wrong with the law, with the moral law. But there is something wrong with us. We are sinful. And what the law does, this law that is holy, righteous, and good, 
The law exposes our sin. It reveals to us how much we fall short of the glory of God. This was Paul's example and Paul's struggle in Romans chapter 7. And he writes there in verse 7. He says, well then, as he's speaking of the law, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? That is bad? He says, of course not. In fact, he says, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. Now, in explaining this, the Reformers and our confession, they speak of the purposes or the functions or the uses of the law, and one of those uses is that the law is a mirror. It's a mirror. That's how it's described. The law of God, in essence, reflects and mirrors the perfect righteousness of God. Just like when we look in a mirror, and in that mirror we see all of our imperfections, that our hair is messed up, I don't have that problem, I haven't had it for years, that our tie is askew, as a mirror reveals our outward imperfections. The mirror of God's law reveals how we fall short of the glory of God. The law tells us about who God is, and as we look into it, it reveals our sinfulness. The law highlights our weaknesses. Why? To make us downcast? Ultimately, the law reveals our weaknesses so that we might seek the strength found in Christ and in Christ alone. It is that which drives us to Christ. Some have explained that the law acts as a severe schoolmaster, as one who drives us to Christ. It drives us to the only one who could and did fulfill the law. It is in Christ, in Christ alone, who perfectly fulfilled the law and through his obedience that we then can become righteous. He is the one, the only one, who did the will of the Father. Where Adam failed, where Israel failed, where you and I fail on a moment-by-moment basis, Christ did not fail. And so, then, loved ones, to turn from Christ, to turn from the only one who is perfectly righteous, the only one who obeyed, to turn away from him is to turn away from the only one who can make us righteous, who can make you righteous. And what happens then, if you turn away from the only way of salvation, if you reject the great salvation offered in and through Christ, is that you will receive a just retribution. That's the conclusion of the author to the Hebrews. That if you turn from Christ, there is no escape from the wrath of God, from the consequences of your sin. The answer to the question of verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The answer is, there is no escape. There is no alternate route. There is no plan B or C or other option. 
This is the way that God has provided. This is the only way. And if you neglect the only way, there is an eternal consequence as a result. Because there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So if these Hebrew Christians turn from Christ into some other means of salvation, perhaps the older covenant and its institutions, or to some other religion, or perhaps forsaking religion and trying to go it alone. If you and I turn away from Christ to some other means of salvation, punishment is certain. It's the very opposite, loved ones, of the instruction need to pay much closer attention. You and I, who have received such a great salvation, must now attend to this gospel. We need to earnestly apply ourselves to studying it, to understanding it, to applying it to every thought, word, and deed. Why? Because it is such a great salvation. It is this which reveals to us that Christ is our prophet, and we need to heed his word. That Christ is our priest, and we need to trust in his atoning work, and he is our king, and we need to worship and reverence him alone. That is the instruction that we receive here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as the author writes. So what is the danger? What is the danger for us as Christians? What was the danger for the Hebrews? This is what we see now in point two. The need to pay much closer attention to the gospel is that the gospel is more than just knowing what It says, but also acknowledging its truth and trusting in it. It is, as many would summarize, it is knowledge, assent, and trust in Christ's atonement. A commentator, he writes that to pay much closer attention in this verse may have a nautical overtone, something to deal with ships and the seas. It, It means to hold a ship toward port or to fasten the anchor to the seabed. That's what it means to pay much closer attention. It's the image of a ship that stays on course and does not get carried away by the currents. And if that's the case, then this imagery ties in perfectly with what we read in the remainder of the verse about the danger of drifting away. This is the danger that is outlined here because... Here, this nautical imagery continues. Because as we read there, to drift away, it describes a ship that has drifted off course. It describes a ship in the harbor that is not properly tied down and that because it's not properly anchored or tied to its moorings, it over time simply drifts away. The idea behind all of this is that the change is subtle. It's slow. It's almost imperceptible at times. The same word describing to drift away is often used to describe a ring that slips from one's finger or a thought that just gets lost, slips your mind. 
the imagery is that it's not sudden. When my friends and I used to surf at Huntington Beach, we'd often get into the water at Lifeguard Tower 2, and depending on how strong the current was, sometimes we'd get out of the water at Lifeguard Tower 10. And that current would slowly take us down, and sometimes we wouldn't even notice because we were busy surfing. We were busy with our activity. And in the lives of Christians, in our lives, what we need to see is that there are seasons where we are more prone to drifting, to drifting away from Christ. Now, some examples of these seasons, I'm sure that there are many that you could think of as well. There are seasons of trials and adversity that often cause Christians to drift away. In the case of these Hebrew Christians, they were experiencing, as we said, social rejection. They were probably not yet experiencing imprisonment or martyrdom, but they were, they were being slandered. And they were being thought strange. They were being called strange. And they were being rejected by their Jewish neighbors because they professed faith in Christ. As we think about their context, it applies so clearly to us today, doesn't it? Our culture doesn't get violent with us because of our faith, as we've seen. It's very rare. But what it does is it exerts a pressure on us to conform. It exerts this pressure on us by mocking us or by portraying us as weird, by making fun of our ethical and moral convictions. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time... I couldn't think of, a, of an example of this, but when was the last time you saw a Christian portrayed in a secular movie or a novel in a good way? Now, I can't recall a good example of that. Oftentimes we see the way that Christians are presented in the mass media is that we're awkward, we're judgmental, we're, we're strange, we are caricatured. And this can lead some who profess faith in Christ to drift away. I don't want to be associated with that. So they simply drift away from Christ. There's also seasons of prosperity. Not just seasons of trials and adversity, but also seasons of prosperity that can cause many to drift away. And oftentimes this is a greater danger to us in America than seasons of trials and adversity. Because prosperity and ease can cause us to let our guard down, can cause us to not remain vigilant. One example we have is that of King David. King David, who, when he was not yet king, was prayerful and valiant for the Lord, when he was slaying lions and giants, and fighting against the Philistines. But then we see King David, who in his later years now sat in a very comfortable palace. When other kings were going off to war, David sat back to relax. And it was in this time of prosperity and of ease in his life that he strayed from the Lord in disobedience by committing adultery with Bathsheba. 
There are also, for Christians, seasons of spiritual boredom and idleness that can also cause many to drift away. This is related to prosperity, and it relates, again, to our context today. We as Christians and people in America, we have so many things to distract us and to numb our hearts and minds. If we think about it, the sheer amount of entertainment and of distraction that is available to us at every moment of every day, it was unfathomable just a century ago. It can become so easy in light of so much distraction that oftentimes bring, brings about boredom and idleness. It can be so easy to neglect the reading of Scripture, of prayer, of fellowship, of worship together on the Lord's Day because we have more entertaining activities to do. And thereby, some drift away. And lastly, there are seasons of, of independence that can cause some to drift away. Seasons of independence. Some of you are preparing at this moment to enter seasons, a season of independence. Perhaps you're starting college or you're going back to college. In essence, what you're doing is you're moving toward more independence. You're moving to places where you will no longer be under your parents' direct influence, under the direct influence of friends at church. You won't have that direct accountability. And so I want to encourage you to continue in what you have been taught, that wherever you're going, you remain steadfast in order not to drift away. And how do you do that? How do I do that? We know that God has provided the means to keep us from drifting. As we look at point three this morning, the means that keep us anchored. We read about the means described in Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 88, which we read during our confession of faith this morning. I will read question 88 for us again. What are the outward means by which Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? And the answer is the outward and ordinary means by which Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. Here in this question and answer, and also in question and answer 88 and 90, or 89 and 90, we see that God's blessing, loved ones, is not found in extraordinary means, not in strange or unusual methods, but in very ordinary means, means that are tied to his church, to the church of Christ. And the word especially, and that's what I want us to focus on at this point, because it's what the author in the passage focuses on. It is the word read, but we see in these questions and answers, it is especially the word preached that teaches us and reminds us of the gospel. It is the word that explains to us the great salvation that we have in Christ. This salvation that we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, the salvation that was declared at first by the Lord. 
Again, that word going forth from the Lord, our prophet. And it was attested to us by those who heard. Again, that word being passed on from the apostles to those very first Christians. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. These signs and wonders that we read about in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, and in the first few decades of the church. And this word, loved ones, that has been given to us as a means of grace, as a means of growth, this word not only provides encouragement, but it also provides warning for us. Warnings like we read here. And we need to see these warnings as God's gracious reminders to us that we are saved, that we are saved from wrath, and warnings that remind us what awaits those who reject Christ. And so, we are those who need to pay much closer attention to it, to give ourselves to the study of it, to confirm or conform ourselves to it, to, to hide it in our hearts and to have it permeate our thoughts, our words, and our deeds so that we might not drift away. And to consider also, as we think about the argument of the author to these early Christians and to us as he's led by the Holy Spirit, to consider that the means God has given to strengthen our faith the means of word, sacraments, prayer, and some would add fellowship, that these means are given to Christ's church to be used by the church. This is a great reminder for us this morning, loved ones, that we are to strive to keep ourselves from drifting, but that you and I are also called to keep one another from drifting as well. To use cautions such as we read here in the book of Hebrews to use admonitions and encouragements to one another when we see one another drifting from the faith in order to draw one another back to Christ. Because what we know from Scripture, loved ones, is that when it comes to our belief, Christianity requires diligence. The Bible describes the Christian life as a fight, as a race, describes it as something that needs our focus and our attention. The Apostle Paul, he uses words to describe his own faith like, I press on. Or he says, I follow after. I strive his faith to describe our faith. Richard Phillips is a pastor in the South. He writes that when it comes to the past tense of our salvation, to what is already finished and secure, namely our justification through faith in Christ, there is no place for works. Faith is, first, essentially passive. We do not act, but receive. Resting upon Christ's saving action on our behalf. But, when it comes to the present tense of our salvation that which is worked out progressively, namely our sanctification, this 
is extremely active. It is in our sanctification that we cooperate with the Holy Spirit, that we keep in step with the Holy Spirit, that by God's grace that powerfully works within us, we seek to grow in Christ-likeness. Martin Lloyd-Jones explains it well when he says, in the matter of our righteousness and justification, we can never say too often that we do nothing. We, we can do nothing in these things. It is entirely the work of Christ when it comes to justification and to our righteousness. But, he says, once we are saved and given this new life, then the progressive work of sanctification doesn't call for our passivity. Instead, he says, we are exhorted to activity, to be those who do not drift, but who use the means that God has given us to pay much closer attention to the great salvation that we have received. Amen.